0: It's Tuesday, September 28th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a distinguished policy fellow here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. That means I get to introduce you to the stars of our show, three of my colleagues who we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would be H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, and a convalescing Neil Ferguson. Neil, Neil, what happened to you today?
1: I had a close encounter with the dentist, uh, and so if I sound a little bit uh, incoherent, it's not that I've been having uh, a quick scotch. It's it's just the after effects of Novocaine.
0: All right. Well, thank you for being a good soldier, and uh, you don't have one of those old English hammocks around your head like they have in the old 19th century movies. So it, it,
1: it, I've never, never been given one of those by a dentist, certainly not here in California.
0: Well, that makes
2: the, the verbal uh, sparring much more even on our parts because we're nowhere near as eloquent as you are normally.
1: You never know, though, because Novocaine has some very interesting side effects. It, it numbs the mouth for a period of time. But I once discovered after uh, going to a dentist for emergency work um, and playing my double bass subsequently that there are all kinds of benefits to Novocaine. Uh, which explains a lot about what happened to jazz music and jazz musicians. Uh, I was playing really the best I've ever played in my life. And so there's always a temptation before playing to go and just get a quick shot from the dentist, but I've resisted it so far. Anyway, if I suddenly can't stop talking like now, you know why. (laughs)
0: All right, gentlemen, on with the show. And today we are doing the long-awaited viewer mail. Uh, And a quick note to those of you who are kind enough to write to us. First of all, many of you expressed um, how concerned you were during the summer when we uh, took a hiatus. Uh, Thank you for your concern. A lot of you said how much you enjoy the show, how you find it to be just a very intellectual, thoughtful escape from a lot of noise and clutter out there. Thank you very much. That's exactly what we're going for. We've got Neil and John and HR to agree to this endeavor. So thanks for the kind thoughts. Also, uh, some of you who sent letters in, uh, we might not get to them today. Uh, I'm sorry, just simply too much mail, too little time. So gentlemen, on with the show. And here's our first question. It comes from a viewer in Tumwater, Washington. A lesson I've taken from goodfellows is that the success of any large endeavor requires clear goals that are frequently communicated. The events in Afghanistan seem to represent a failure in this. In today's world of social media and hyperpartisanship, how would the Goodfellas reach the American people in a way that builds and sustains popular support for long-term problems?
3: Yeah. well, I'll just say the viewer. I think the viewers got it right. I mean, what you what the American people deserves. They know, need to know two things, right? What, what is, you know, what what is the nature of the problem? Obviously, it was a challenge internationally. Uh, and 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 what is what is at stake, right? What is the so what? And then what is the strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome at an acceptable cost? And I think you can make the argument that at least across the last three administrations, leadership didn't provide the American people with what they deserved and needed to know.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd add that I think we need to go back and look at how political speeches used to be crafted, uh, because the present generation of speech writers appears unfamiliar with uh, the art uh, if you look at Churchill's great speeches, which are in many ways the, uh, the the culmination of a tradition of of Western rhetoric, there's always the historical perspective, how we got here. Uh, then there is the objective clearly set out, and then there is that that inspiration that uh, that persuades the nation to 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 buckle up and to prepare for the hard uh, and sometimes long winding path. And one doesn't hear that from politicians anymore. That's not what speechwriters are trained to to give them.
2: Well, if you know? guys are going to push uh, military and history, I'll push economics. <laughs> but this is a uh, there's an economic angle to exactly that question. You know, modern economics really emphasizes the importance of rules, institutions, regimes, uh, rights, uh, how the game works as opposed to what are we doing today, throw some money at the problem and move on. So that's monetary policy, that's fiscal policy, that's regulation, that's the, the whole way things to work. Let's just get the, get the rules of the game right and steady as opposed to uh, constantly shoot from the hip with this thing or the other is the key to long run prosperity as well.
0: Okay. A question from Essex, England, and gentlemen. We had questions from four different continents, so we are we are a global phenomenon. Uh, our viewer asked question for Neil and HR. In the new Cold War, do you believe the prospect of mutual nuclear destruction will, like in the first Cold War, prevent direct conflict between the U.S. and China? If so, do you think war by proxy will reemerge? And if so, where? Question for all good fellows, especially John, who will win the economic battle in the second
1: Cold War? What is it? It's a question from England. Perhaps the Scotsman should go first. It's not the same uh, in that respect uh, and in others. Cold War II has a significantly different uh, nuclear aspect because the United States is a vastly greater nuclear power than China. And China would have to build weapons for years uh, to catch up. Uh, and until we get to that point, it's like the early stages of Cold War I. Because in the early stages of Cold War I, the United States had massive superiority over the Soviet Union, which only really caught up in the later 1960s. Uh, What does that tell us? In early Cold War, there isn't actually mutually assured destruction. There's a really large asymmetry. The problem is, if problem is the right word, that the United States then and now would be very reluctant to use nuclear weapons, even when it did so from a position of advantage. And I think this is an important point that people forget. Much of the Cold War was characterized by American restraint, for example, during the Korean War, not by mutually assured destruction. That came later.
3: Mm -hmm. H.R.? Yeah, I I agree with Neil. I think I would just point out that China is racing to expand its nuclear arsenal uh, and is including now hypersonic missiles, which... Really makes missile defense much more problematic. Of course, Russia has always had this ability, you know, to threaten the United States with cruise missile missiles over the over the over the the North Pole and the polar cap, and and uh, and and of course that led to really mutually assured destruction. Right there, it doesn't make any sense. Obviously, nuclear war at any level, I don't think. But but uh, but China is racing to expand its arsenal and is is developing hypersonic uh, missiles, as are we and uh, as are the Russians. Uh, they could also change the dynamic of deterrence a bit, but but um, of course, as Neil pointed out as well, you know the, the presence of, of atomic and then and nuclear weapons did not preclude many uh, you know many um, you know no, wars uh, in, in you know in the post World War II period, and uh, and I think what we have to do is be able to deter at various levels, right? What in the 1960s became the doctrine of flexible response, rather than to rely. As, as, as the Eisenhower administration did for, for a portion of that administration on massive retaliation or mutually assured destruction.
0: John, who wins that, the economic battle?
2: Well, at first I get to get a, a, a two points on that one. Uh, mutually assured destruction is very interesting from a game theory uh, point of view. In one sense, it worked amazingly well. I can't think that a historian in 1945 would say that there will not be a great power confrontation, a classic war between the United States and and Russia. And and it did not happen, which is pretty amazing. But why it worked is kind of an open question uh, because mutually assured destruction, there's some holes in the game theory there. Uh, once you've lost a little bit there just really is no reason that you would go murder 100 million people on the other side it doesn't it it doesn't do you any good um but uh we yeah, so long as you're dealing with faintly rational uh people on the other side it's it seemed to have worked uh countries with nuclear weapons don't get invaded yes then who loses the economic battle so the free trader here is always going to object when you start up with this stuff uh economics is not a zero-sum game there's not a winner and a loser uh Hopefully we all win, but the question in a strategic competition is is not going to be who wins the economic battle. It's going to be who doesn't lose the economic battle. Who uh, who who can avoid shooting themselves in the foot? Uh, because that's the what we need is long run, uh, hardy, long run, innovative growth. And mm. and both of our countries are uh, are putting lots of roadblocks in in the way of that. Um, so I I hope it's uh, I hope it's not China.
0: <laughs> A viewer from Kingston, Ontario writes, with the delta variant of COVID-19 leading to reduced efficacy of vaccines, should the United States pursue a policy that favors stockpiling vaccines for booster shots or prioritize exporting vaccines to assist developing countries? I'll say should,
3: yes. How about we how if we what if we do both? But go ahead, uh John and, and Neil. Well, right now the problem on
2: vaccines is not is not supply. The problem is is the supply of the people to the delivery and the people to get them in the arms. That's the problem in the third world, uh, and uh, there's no point in stockpiling m- masses of vaccines that all rot and that aren't aren't effective against the next variant. So you you want flexible production capacity, and then the problem the problem of the third world, the problem of other countries is you want to develop the capacity to get shots in arms faster.
1: Neil. Yeah. It's an easy one. As long as you leave really substantial parts of the world's population unvaccinated, the probability of a dangerous variant goes up. And so we actually are strongly incentivized out of self-interest to speed up the vaccination, especially of Africa, which is way behind with low single digit percentages of the population fully vaccinated. Uh, Stockpiling, as John said, makes no sense Uh, in any case the vaccines will likely need to be updated, as is the case with influenza vaccines. So, no, we we need to vaccinate the world, and the fact that we're so far from doing that means that the pandemic isn't really over. It could, in fact, resume if a new variant came along that was more uh, contagious and perhaps more deadly or vaccine evading than Delta.
0: Hr, anything you'd like to add? No, no, I, I agree. I agree with both both of uh, my colleagues on this. Now that is a delightfully quick answer. A question for Dr. Ferguson. never
2: happened before. This is the first time ever.
0: <laughs> well, it took us 18 months to do it. A question for Neil from New York City. When in history has a large sovereign debt been a turning point for government or, or a major issue? For the U.S. after World War II, or Great Britain after the Napoleonic Wars, it was manageable, maybe due to high economic growth and birth rates, but the debt for the French government and the Lancien regime was crippling. Can you weigh in on historical causes, examples, and what we should think about with mounting sovereign debts?
1: There are quite a few other examples uh, in addition to uh, the France of the old regime. Uh, The Ottoman Empire went into a debt crisis in the late 1870s. In fact, there were multiple debt crises in the late 19th century, uh, and it was often an opportunity for Great Britain to establish control over a country's finances. That happened to Egypt, uh, for example. Now, what's interesting about the two cases that the questioner raised the case of Britain after 1815 and the United States after 1945, uh, is that the problem uh, was solved uh, through a combination of uh, growth uh, uh, and fiscal uh, retrenchment, Uh, as well in the American case as a bit of inflation, though inflation wasn't really as important uh, and it didn't play any part in in the British case. So what you had was very strong Uh, economic fundamentals, uh, a high growth rate, uh, and uh, policies of running primary surpluses are are indeed outright surpluses in the case of 19th century Britain. These are very, very unusual cases historically. Uh, If you look at Ken Rogoff's great book with Carmen Reinhart, This Time is Different, you'll see that most debt uh, mountains uh, don't get uh, fixed that way, and that really those two cases are the outliers Generally speaking, it's a problem if your debt rises to the level that we currently see in the United States, that is around 100% of GDP. Mm -hmm. It's forecast to hit 200% of GDP by mid-century. And it's hard to believe that any great power can sustain its power uh, with that kind of a debt burden, not least because at a certain point, the interest rates, uh, the interest or debt service that you're paying exceed the amount that you can spend on your national security. And that's, that's usually the tipping point for any great power.
2: I just add to that. uh, I agree entirely with Neil. I I (laughs) have a
1: second one, but I want to add right there.
2: (laughs) There's a big difference between the US 1945 and and, uh, the UK 1812 and our situation now. Their wars were over (laughs) and their big deficits were over. Our big deficits are just starting. That's one big difference. They both went into, in one case, the Industrial Revolution and the other, the, the explosion of the 1950s, both un- unheard of supply side productivity, raising uh, a growth in a very unregulated economy. Uh, we're we're not, we're facing slow growth in a very highly regulated economy. So we're just, that is not the same situation in either way, and and the danger signs are there. And I'm quite curious by the tendency on on Washington to place enormous faith in 100-year-out climate forecasts down to the last decimal point, and nobody wants to place any faith in what happens to debts and deficits if we keep going this way
0: question for Dr. Cochran, somewhat related, it comes from Houston, John. What is it going to take for this country to sort out its fiscal situation? Are we going to have to endure hardships like inflation and perhaps a debt crisis? Or can public opinion be changed before disaster strikes? Well,
2: I don't know about public opinion. Technically, this is easy. All it takes is common sense. Hmm. Uh, we, we, We do not face any external problems. There's no hordes of barbarians at the gates. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, we just had a little pandemic, but we, we also invented amazing vaccines. Uh, so our, our problems are, are internal. It just takes a fiscal reform, put any blue. Me and bipartisan commission together, uh, lower the marginal rates, uh, raise the baits, get, get some sense, sensibleness going to our tax system, reform the entitlement system. It's not hard. Uh, mm-hmm. The three of us could do it in an afternoon. Uh, get the political will to do that before there's a crisis forcing it. That's another question. But these are not hard economic uh, problems.
0: H.R. question to you from a viewer in Clifton, Virginia. Quote, we've heard from H.R. McMaster that pulling out of Afghanistan was a mistake because it only cost the U.S. around $20 billion to maintain a stable country that would not incubate a terrorist state. This argument is persuasive until one considers the propensity for evil to take root elsewhere. If we're to accept General McMaster's prescription, uh, where does this end? Should we go into Pakistan, Sudan, the countless other places that over time may well incubate Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations? How do we determine when enough is enough?
3: well i think the key point is that it was really the afghans who were bearing the brunt of the fight against these enemies of all civilized people and that's the case in in many of the other areas that the that the viewer mentioned you know from the g5 sahel where the French were supporting mainly indigenous forces with enabled by some of our logistics and intelligence capabilities uh a case where uh, indigenous forces in somalia you know are operating against al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula a particularly dangerous jihadist terrorist organization that is determined to commit mass murder on on american soil so i think it really depends really on 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 an overall effort to defeat jihadist terrorists uh, at a cost that's acceptable without us without us bearing the, the brunt of that fight right because these are really the enemies of all humanity and it's worth pointing out i think bill that those who have suffered the most at the hands of jihadist terrorists were our fellow Muslims, right? So, and those are the people who are bearing the brunt of this fight. Um, but, but I think the overall point that underpins the viewer's question is that it has to be sustainable. We're not going to solve this problem in a definitive way. We're not, and we're certainly we're not going to do it ourselves. And, and I think the what the American people again, which goes back to the first question you asked, I, I need to know is what is the strategy that delivers security for us uh, at an acceptable cost and acceptable risk.
0: Second question for you, HR, and this ties into Neil's World War I book from Pasadena. Quote, as America disengages from the world and local alliances fill the void, Abraham Accords, Japan's new defense agreements. Will this keep rogue adventurous states, Taliban, Iran in check, or are we headed toward another World War I fiasco? Yeah, well,
3: let's hope we're not headed toward another World War I fiasco. And ask Neil to comment on this as well, who wrote a great book called The Pity of, of War, in which he, he argued that this was a war that was uh, you know, utterly uh, preventable. As uh, one of the elements of of his argument in in that book. Uh, But I do think that some of these uh, alliances or partnerships among like-minded countries can be quite positive. I think the Abraham Accords is an example of of a positive development. I think the most recent AUKUS, or however you pronounce it, the the Australia-UK-US arrangement is positive because it enhances defense capabilities in a way that could be successful in deterring an increasingly aggressive China, for example. So uh, I think the quad format, where you just saw President Biden last week host the leaders of India, Japan, and Australia—another positive sort of group of like-minded countries. So I don't think this sets us up uh, for war. I think in many ways, what it does is it it demonstrates to China that it cannot create servile relationships with countries on on the Eurasian uh, rimland, <laughs> and and uh, and that, and that if it becomes continues to be aggressive, the countries will work together to protect their sovereignty and to deter. Uh, Chinese aggression. Neil, any thoughts on this about the analogy to World War I? I'm thinking also of uh, Margaret MacMillan's excellent essay from years ago called The Rhyme of History, in which she compared geostrategic dynamics today to those in 1914. But Neil, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think if one looks back on 1914, what's going on there that produces a global conflict is essentially a failure of deterrence. Britain does not do enough prior to 1914 to convince Germany's leaders that the risk of uh, a European war is too high. In fact, Germany's leaders, uh, as the war was uh, breaking out, didn't think that the UK would intervene. Uh, so ambiguous uh, had uh, Britain's signaling been. Uh, and of course, the same mistake then happened again in 1938-39, when Hitler didn't expect Britain to go to war over Poland. So for me, the big lesson is that the United States has to send clear signals to China uh, that will deter it from taking a risky step like for example, the invasion of Taiwan. By the way, here at the Hoover Institution, we've just spent two days in an absolutely fascinating conference on the very subject of of Taiwan. And I've come away from it thinking a lot about the very question that that our viewers just asked. And if the United States doesn't get this right, if it seems incapable, in fact, of of standing up uh, for Taiwan, then I think China will be tempted to take action in the relatively near future. And that's a very, very scary prospect Because if you end up with a conflict between the United States and China, it has the potential to become a world war. So I think it's a highly relevant analogy.
0: Let's do some lightning round questions. I want all three of you to address these very quickly. Uh, We can make Neil smile having been to the dentist. I know Neil (laughs) loves lightning questions. First one comes from Durham, North Carolina. If you were to pick one issue that the president or Congress needs to solve, what would it be and how would you tell them to solve it?
1: We've already touched on the fiscal issue, so we don't need to deal with that uh, now. And we, we've we touched on a foreign policy issue, which is the need to deter uh, China over Taiwan. Uh, but I'd say that the issue that is uh, rapidly getting away from this administration is actually the southern border. And uh, if they don't uh, watch out, they're going to they're going to actually end up turning Barack Obama into a Republican because just today he, ste- he stepped up and said open borders are not a, a, an option. Uh, so yeah, I think that that seems like an issue that they really can't neglect for much longer.
3: HR? Yeah, I, I would say that just a, a broad range of reforms that, that would help I think, generate economic growth and give more Americans access to the great promise of the country. And so we hear a lot about you know diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, I think what that really means is what we want is equality of opportunity for all Americans. So I would like to see policies put in place in the various legislation that's pending in Congress that actually remove barriers associated with poor quality education, for example. And of course, the federal government only has a limited role in all this, but I think the federal government has been actually part of the problem in this connection rather than developing solutions to real problems and get away from the kind of the rhetoric and let's work together to build a a better future inside of our country.
2: I'll go with uh, governance, Uh, fix, fix what's the machinery of Washington, which is not working. Uh, Each president comes in and issues a slurry of executive orders like he's just been uh, appointed king. And the next president unwinds all of those. Uh, The administrative agencies are out of control. Congress is dysfunctional. Just the basic mechanics of our governments uh, abiding by the norms. Uh, You don't bring a gun to a knife fight to to invert the usual uh, uh, statement. Uh, Get the government working back again And, and then we can produce The kind of straightforward reforms I think all of us see as necessary and just about everyone in Washington sees as
0: necessary as well. From a viewer in Zurich, if China magically woke up tomorrow as a liberal democracy, how would that change geopolitical challenge China poses to the United States?
1: It would be great news. We would all have cost to celebrate. Of course, uh, China would very quickly find that democracy is harder uh, than authoritarianism. And so we'd uh, have an extremely interesting uh, spectacle of of China wrestling with the kind of problems that currently get decided by a handful of people, the standing committee of the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, it would be a cause for celebration. It would also be a most fascinating spectacle. I'd order popcorn right away.
3: I think it's a positive development because, of course, our problem is not with the Chinese people uh our problem is with the policies of the chinese communist party and the broad range of, of aggressive actions they are taking economically uh, as well as as well as militarily so uh i think it would be a positive development i think it would be really a, you know an opportunity for some renewed partnerships uh and of course it's not for us to decide this but it's up to the chinese people to decide it and i personally don't believe that the chinese people are culturally predisposed toward not wanting to say in how in how they're governed
2: Mm-hmm. In fact, I think what you see in a grab for authoritarianism, you're often seeing an admission of weakness. Um, why get rid of the billionaires? Well, for the same reason, they, uh, people worry about their political power. Um, uh, and why, why squash companies? Well, because they're getting too big for the britches. Well, exactly. They're getting too big for the britches. They're starting to demand their own say in things. Uh, so I, I see that sign of weakness and, and maybe that day will come sooner than we
0: think. From a viewer in Saxon, Germany, who describes his or herself as young, healthy, and data-driven. Quote, why should I get vaccinated?
1: Because the uh, danger uh, from the virus is two orders of magnitude larger than the danger from the vaccine. And if you're data-driven, that should do it for you. HR?
0: Neil, oh John,
3: I, I I agree, and it's of course your responsibility to yourself to protect your own health, but also the, the health of others. So I think that there is a there's also a, a, a responsibility uh, to you know to actually protect uh, the most vulnerable population by by not transmitting the disease to those who are most susceptible to, to to suffering or or death, and of course that's that's mainly the the older population.
2: For the same reason, you already are vaccinated against smallpox. Uh, uh, polio, I can't name all the diseases that our ancestors suffered from and that you've already been vaccinated against. And because vaccines are also orders of magnitude more effective than everything else we're doing, like masks and social distancing and locking down uh, businesses and so forth.
0: Okay, we'll do another light round in a few minutes. Uh, Let's turn to a viewer from Annapolis who writes, as a current undergraduate history major, I'd be interested in hearing advice from Dr. Ferguson and General McMaster to someone just starting out in the history discipline. What have you learned about your career that you'd like to have known as an undergraduate?
1: I think when I was an undergraduate, I wasn't given enough encouragement to read on a global scale uh, and over very long time frames if I had only been handed uh, some of the great histories of the world, uh, like Ernst Gomrich's or H.G. Uh, Wells's or some of the more recent efforts, uh, 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 for example, I think it would have been a terrific help to me to have got a sense of the big picture before I started to dive into the intricacies of uh, what used to be called English history and general history, which turned out just to be European history. So, yeah, bigger picture earlier on would have helped enormously.
3: And I'll just jump in on that just to say, I think you can improve on Michael Howard's advice on how to study history and and his suggestion that you study military history in particular, really. But I think all history is, as, as Neil's suggesting. Uh, in width you know, across time so you can identify both change and continuity in, 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 uh, in historical experience. as the historian Carl Becker said, it's all about continuity and change and that memory of past events and anticipation of future should walk hand in hand in a happy way. And then, in depth, uh, study history in depth so you can understand the complex causality of events, and 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 uh, the tidy outlines of history dissolve when you look at a campaign or a battle or a period of diplomatic history uh, in, in in greater depth, and then and then in context, to view history in context of, of, of broad dynamics uh, associated with uh, with with uh, with culture and social dynamics, uh, you know, and our form of governance, for example, and how that affects. Uh, the, the way that we conduct diplomacy, or or wage war, for that matter. So, Michael Howard's essay, "The Use and Abuse of Military History," I would I would read that and 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 think about how you're going to study history in width, depth, and in context.
2: Guys, should somebody still study history in an American university? Will they get that knowledge and perspective that uh, you like and that I like in my in my amateur reading of history?
1: Well, they've got to be careful, um, because uh, there are certain institutions uh, where the history departments are not necessarily doing uh, the kind of job that they they should be doing. So the, there certainly needs to be history studied. Uh, I would just question uh, what is uh, builder's history in certain institutions, which on closer inspection is, is nothing of the kind. Remember, one of the things that you've got to do when you're studying the past is to understand it in its own terms. Uh, The purpose of history is not to take uh, the value system of 2021 and march back through the ages condescending to people in the past and finding them objectionable because of their racism and sexism and insensitivity to transgender rights. That's not the point of history. Uh, And so if you are keen on the subject, uh, look carefully at what's being offered. Uh, It may not, in fact, uh, be true history. It may, in fact, be some kind of ideological activism disguised as history.
0: It's mm-hmm. your hey, anything you want to add?
3: And that should be the beauty of history is, re- is rejecting these kind of reified theories, right? And and, and understanding, you know, the complex uh, problems and and complex interactions uh, that, from a historical perspective. And and uh, and I think going back to to original documents or original research is immensely important in that connection uh, and being wary as as, uh, as Neil has warned of kind of the presentist view uh, and the propensity, I think, across all humanities departments these days to try to foist, I think, an orthodoxy uh, on, on, on students. I think students should reject that.
1: (laughs) I should add something, Uh, which is the extreme importance of being an autodidact, even if you are at a university. I was very fortunate that at Oxford in the 1980s, there was enough freedom uh, that I was able to read not only what I was asked to read, but also the things that I encountered in the library that looked interesting. And I I went on all kinds of uh, wild goose chases and digressions. I spent a great many weeks immersing myself uh, in the uh, writings of a rather obscure Viennese satirist named Karl Krauss, whose play on World War I, The Last Days of Mankind, really changed my life. Nobody asked me to read that. I just kind of came upon it in my own reading. And I look at uh, the contemporary American campus and I see very little of that kind of autodidactic spirit. All too often, students just take what they're assigned to read. It's usually not a whole book, it's probably just a chapter. And that's it. They don't really explore. They don't even go to the libraries because, of course, the readings for the course are available as PDFs on the course website. So they don't have the thrill that I used to have of browsing the library and finding books right next to the ones I'd been asked to read that actually looked a bit more interesting. So you should always be an autodidact, even if you're in a four-year program at a university.
2: Well, I'll just add that this autodidact, I I still read history just for fun. And the number one thing I get is, is I think what you pointed centrally there, to try to understand the mentality of people in another country in another era, how totally different it is I'm an economist, how they make the choices they make, how they saw the world in their value terms, so hard. People were so different not so long ago.
0: Let's move on from a a viewer in Santa Monica who writes, what did John and Neil think of Bitcoin? John, Bitcoin. And I got one minute. (laughs) I don't see any behind you on your desk. Um,
2: Technologically interesting, uh, very old, there's nothing new in the crypto space as far as financial stuff, Uh, fiat money, uh, especially a fiat money that has uh, arbitrary competitors eventually has to lose value. Uh, Have fun speculating on it for a while and make sure you have most of your money somewhere else.
1: I'm a believer uh, because I think uh, that blockchain-based finance has enormous potential uh, the existing monetary regime uh is essentially a 1970s invention fiat money uh it's uh by no means uh inscribed in tablets of stone that we'll always have this system of money. And in fact, when I look around the world, I see what seems like a sustained campaign to blow it up uh, with uh, vast deficits and, uh, and enormously expanding central bank balance sheets. So what's great is that in the midst of the financial crisis, uh, the enigmatic figure of Satoshi came up with the idea of peer-to-peer payments based on blockchain without third party verification uh, and with fixed supply. Uh, so Bitcoin uh, is part of a revolution uh, in money and in finance that is still at a relatively early stage that's given rise to, to an entire uh, ecosystem of decentralized finance. Uh, my view is that this is a hugely interesting frontier of innovation. It's the internet of money. It's mm-hmm. going to be, I think, increasingly how people save uh, and speculate, certainly speculate, uh, in a new metaverse and online space, which is just different from the fiat world of uh, of essentially government-issued currencies. And these two worlds will be connected. Uh, you'll have a kind of off-ramp which gets you uh, back into fiat dollars to pay your taxes. It's in an, an extremely interesting situation right now as the regulators in Washington try to decide whether they should or can kill it or not and I, I must admit to being a little disquieted by some of the negative noises that emanate from the SEC, from the Treasury, from the Fed. Uh, there's a kind of conspiracy of foot to kill it all and replace it with the central bank digital currency. Man, that's a Chinese idea. What are we doing wanting to import it. that? Uh, so there's there's a really interesting debate going on right now. And in that debate, I'm firmly on the side of crypto.
2: I think All we right. need to have a longer show on on crypto where it's going because uh, I three quarters agree with Neil, what Neil just said and a quarter disagree. Uh, but but this is a lot of fun. We can't do this in a minute, Neil. Let's come. Let's come back next week. Hundred percent. Let's We're let's we'll we'll
1: see if can yeah, put HR to sleep. That's a fellow's <laughs> crypto edition. Bring it on.
0: HR's on his laptop doing Bitcoin as we talk. So.
1: Um, <laughs> A question from New York City. He looks more like an Ethereum guy to me, to be honest. I don't think
3: he's... I don't think... I'll am just. i I'll just tell you, after this season of Goodfellas, I'm applying for college credit
0: in economics. <laughs> a question from New York City. To what extent is wokeism a romantic movement? I think a lot of young people learn about the civil rights movement and want to have a part in that great struggle. They want to be in one of the crowds fighting for something real, fighting good versus evil. How do romantic movements end?
1: Well, romanticism... Romanticism was a wonderful movement that produced some of the greatest works of art in all of human civilization. Uh, It also produced uh, ideas uh, like the nation-state that have become the organizing principles of the modern world. So when you're listening to Beethoven's Ode to Joy, you're listening uh, to Romanticism. When you read the novels of Tolstoy, you're reading Romanticism. Let's not confuse this great movement with the a turgid uh, and ultimately nihilistic cult of wokeism, which is much more, it seems to me, in common with the crazier aspects of the Protestant Reformation than it has with Romanticism. Uh, it's extremely depressing to me uh, that a MacArthur Genius Award has just been given uh, to Ibrahim Kendi, than whom no one needs one less, whose basic objective appears to be to re-legitimize racism uh, on a kind of tit-for-tat basis, that uh, if there was racism against uh, black people by white people in the past, they should ta- turn the tables and now do racism in the other direction. This man is being rewarded for institutionalizing racism in the name of anti-racism. No, this is this is not romantic. Uh, it's deeply, deeply negative. Uh, and I think it's doing great harm, not least in our universities today, by giving rise to a profoundly illiberal state of mind. If you look, for example, at the recent uh, rankings of uh, academic freedom published by FIRE, a wonderful institution that tracks academic freedom, the most depressing thing is the extent of self-censorship that now pervades academic life. Uh, and the reason for this self-censorship is that people are terrified of the woke mob coming to cancel them if they have the temerity uh, to step out of line. So, no, there's nothing in, in at all to connect wokeism to romanticism. I think they're almost antithetical to one another.
0: I think the
2: word "romantic." Um, it's interesting that the, the viewer asked it this way. There is an appeal of wokeism to uh, people who need something, some sense of meaning in their life, and don't seem to have it. The sort of people who, in the past, might have taken religious orders uh, and and go bother people about their faith. But that's not as you Neil. Know, that's not what this is. I view it as a political slash religious cult. Um, and the two parts are essential because this is about political power. It's a, an event like Savonarola, like Bolshevism, like the uh, re- like the Reformation. Now, many of you may go to uh, nice Protestant churches today, but the Reformation unleashed a wa- 100-year wave of bloodshed throughout Europe as people slaughtered each other over tiny questions of doctrine. Mm-hmm. It requires you to master an ever-changing invented language just like religious cults. And the point is, to, uh, to take over power to silence those who who uh, don't go along with you so it, it is a, a very dangerous moment um that's you know that's how the Bolsheviks worked um that uh, uh, and I, I I would characterize it that way not not as romantic
3: mm-hmm. I, I would just say that those who are subjected to this sort of cult of, of wokeism or aspects of critical race theory ought to just ask let's just ask each other some questions. Do you really believe? that we ought, to, we ought to judge one another by identity category, you know, instead of the content of our character or, uh, or for in the military, your courage, your determination, your willingness to sacrifice. And we should ask you, know, do you, do you really believe that the only remedy to racism is more racism? I mean, do you really believe uh, that, that, we are, that, that we don't have a degree of common humanity uh, that, that binds us together and allows us to transcend you know, superficial aspects of 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 our appearance, like skin color, for example. You know, so I, I think when you ask these questions, I think you can draw out, you know, kind of the the the, the danger associated uh, with uh, with elements of critical race theory and wokeism, uh, as well as the degree to which they it is just an unsound group of of ideas uh and and uh, to which our children are being subjected you know and, and i think we just can't stand for it a- anymore but all cults
2: have required people to stand up and say completely ridiculous things that's part of the of the power of it it's it's about an inquisition <laughs> people want to join the inquisition it's about damning the outsider uh those are very strong powers and and as neil points out everybody else learn to shut up and go along
3: when the witch trials are on and no, no nobody wants to get the string of fire emojis you know, sent at them.
0: H.R. I have a related question for you. It comes from a viewer in Warm Springs, Virginia. He writes, I was commissioned a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army in 1978. The post-Vietnam Army was at a low point. Many of the woke ideas we see today were bubbling up. Morale and race relations were terrible. Recruiting for quality, a nightmare. Given conflict over the past 20 years, we see many of the same post-Vietnam issues reemerging. Do you agree? And he also adds, will you be writing Dereliction of Duty, Part 2?
3: Well, I do think we see some dangers to the warrior ethos. I'm writing an essay about this now, and and uh, and and this kind of you know, these kind of reified theories that we're discussing are one of the dangers uh, uh, that to the to the warrior ethos. But I don't think it's like the army of the late '70s at all. I think the Renaissance that a generation of officers helped organize uh, in our armed forces after Vietnam, and these are officers who served before the real deter- deterioration. Uh, in, in the professionalism of our force and the, and the, and the ability of our force under the, you know, under the duress of the Vietnam War and personnel policies, which were seemed to be designed to destroy the, the military, uh, those, those took effect in the 1980s, and we're still riding on it. I believe that our professional military ethic is strong. I believe that our warrior ethos, ethos is still strong, but it's under duress. It's under duress from, you know, from partisan politics. Uh, and trying to drag the military into partisan politics. It's under duress from, you know, from wokeism or however you want to uh, describe these sort of of reified theories. And it's under duress, I think, because some Americans think, you know, and American leaders think it's okay to lose wars and talk about responsible ends to wars. And uh, in a way that I think really um, damages uh, our commitment to winning in war, which is, I think, an element of of fighting war ethically as well. So, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think hard about this now and hopefully I'll have some thoughts to share, you know, in the coming, coming weeks.
0: All right. Neil, a question to you from a viewer in Western Australia. Back in February, Australia passed a law that required social media platforms to pay news outlets for content shared on their platforms. Is this a model that could work in the U S would it be effective in curbing some of the bad behavior by big tech?
1: Great part of the world, Western Australia, uh, uh, greetings from, from California. I think what's happening uh, in this area is extremely important because uh, beginning really uh, uh, 10 or more years ago, we saw a process whereby uh, traditional media uh, organizations, uh, newspapers, as well as terrestrial and satellite television gradually had uh, the rule, uh, power undermined by the spread of internet platforms. Uh, not least uh, Facebook, uh, uh, Google, and uh, the various other media companies, Twitter, that are smaller. Now, what do you do when a platform uh, is a platform when it wants to be but a publisher when it wants to be? What do you do when a company like Facebook is able to be a platform with no responsibility for the content that it hosts when it suits it, but then can edit, uh, that includes uh, excluding content, Uh, When it feels like being a publisher, Uh, the way that things are set up, and this has been true since the 1990s, is extraordinary, like Catch-22, and it's hugely beneficial to those big companies. And it's been disastrous for traditional content producers, especially in the area of news. Trying to get some of the money to flow from the network platforms to the content providers makes sense. The same proposal has been made uh, in Europe. I can remember Matthias Döpfner of Springer making this argument years ago. uh, But I'll be very surprised indeed if this is ever forced upon Facebook and its peers in the United States. And the reason for that is obvious. They are far too powerful. Powerful enough to cancel a sitting president of the United States if they feel like it. And certainly powerful enough to prevent any meaningful change to the legislation which currently governs their operations. So way to go, Australia, but I'm sad to say this is not going to become the global standard.
2: I would also uh, agree that regulation is usually not the answer to these things. The way this sort of thing goes out when you have a big company like this is regulation means we'll let you have your monopoly if you do what we say. Competition is is the cure for all wounds. Uh, and uh You know, let's let's make sure that uh, other companies like Substack, like the other things that are now evolving to try to uh, get um, to get some money flowing towards the content creators and to allow uh, to get around the censorship. Let's just make sure those uh, those places are allowed to come compete and hopefully drive the dinosaurs out or force them to reform.
0: Let's do some lightly round questions, gentlemen. A question from uh, from Helsinki. Which country in South America or Africa will make a noticeable positive or negative impact on the world stage in the next decade, economically or geopolitically, and why?
1: Well, it's only a few years ago that I was being told by economists specializing in Africa uh, that there was uh, a wonderful future ahead for Ethiopia. And I think it's already clear that that future is going to dis- disintegrate into uh, a, a fresh round of, of civil conflict and potentially famine. So let, let me just point out that that was supposed to be one of the great hopes of, uh, of the East African economy, and it has already deeply disappointed.
3: Hmm. HR? I'll, I'll pick Ethiopia as well, but for a different reason. I think there's a, we're about to see a regional conflict potentially between Ethiopia and Egypt over water. Uh, and then in in, in, uh, in the western hemisphere in Latin America I just think there's a shift toward uh, you know toward the left and toward illiberalism and I think the the aftermath of the elections the elections in in the, in the region will be importantly important to follow. Uh, there was just an outcome in Peru that I think is going to be negative for that country Colombia has an election coming up uh, very soon. Uh, and, and, uh, and then we'll see what happens with the constitution rewrite in Chile An election coming up in Argentina. After that, um, you already have a movement toward a a populist, uh, president in, in El Salvador, Daniel Ortega is still hanging on as, as is Maduro. So I, I mean, I really, I I'm concerned about the Western hemisphere, not any one particular country. Um, uh, but, and in Africa, I would also pick, uh, Ethiopia for the reason I mentioned.
1: The good news may be, the only good news in South America may be that Argentines are getting sick of Peronism again, and might just give clean government a shot, who knows. John?
2: Yeah, it's it's been sad to see, for example, how Chile has turned turned leftwards in a way that, that was, you know, 20 years ago, one of the great bets. The recipe is easy. I mean, these countries don't have to do anything new. It's catch-up growth. Uh, we know what it takes. It takes property rights, rule of law, competent administration, uh, certain amount of freedom, get get up on the ease of doing business index, and, and you'll grow like a shot, especially when you start low.
1: Uh, Hang on, John. I thought the ease of doing business index had been cancelled owing to... Uh- some uh the old, goings on at the world the old Bank.
2: ease of the old ease of doing business before uh before china ease, had ease, of,
1: rig, eager, ease of rigging rankings yes
2: uh well the, the 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 actual ease of doing business get hernando de soto to be able to set up a business in less than 10 steps and and so that uh but that is not uh and and it would be lovely if the united states were leading uh, in in just simple get the simple governance right and everything else will follow from it. Okay. I don't know who's going to do it. I you know I can't bet which country will when I've I've I had some wonderful discussions with people from Brazil. Um, so from the people who I talked to in Brazil last week seem to be all
3: ready to do it. <laughs> we'll see if they can win. No, I, sh- I should have mentioned Brazil and and the future of Bolsonaro and the election coming up there. Uh, and, the, and then also the direction that AMLO is taking and a Mexican election in about two years as well is going to be consequential for Mexico. But people have to want this. We, we have to remember stuff. Stuff doesn't come from
2: politicians. It comes from people. If people understand that freedom, opportunity, property rights, rule of law is what's going to get them rich, then they will get rich.
0: OK, speaking of Chile, we have a question from a, a viewer in that country. What about Cuba? Is the U.S. forgetting about its backyard?
3: Well, it's not the backyard. Let's call it the neighborhood, <laughs> and then, and then I would say, I would, I would say that I don't think the U.S. is forgetting about it, but I think the Biden administration has brought people back in the administration who would continue to have a, a soft spot for the Cuban army somehow. You know, and, and and I think what's important to recognize is all the talk about, you know, about eliminating sanctions and and, and and restarting commercial activity in Cuba. It's not going to do any good for the Cuban people because that will just strengthen the grip that the that the, that the Cuban army has on the economy. So I think that that we ought to support the Cuban people uh, and, and, and not and not make it easy uh, for the for the Cuban army to, to remain in control.
2: I thought it was amazing. We had a chance last summer. The Cubans were an open rebellion. All we had to do was help get get them some internet quickly and and whisper some support. I think part of the problem is how old we're all getting in the United States, especially in politics. Everybody in Washington went to college in the era of Che Guevara T-shirts and and little berets and and Mao books and 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 the they've, they've, they the the idea that this was some uh, some wonderful paradise is they just haven't gotten rid of that. Uh, so it's it's kind of it's sad that uh, here was a here was a chance and and we let it slip.
1: 1%. Well, you could have said the same about Venezuela, of course, which is a, the real disaster in mm. the region. And we forget that that Venezuela has now generated as many, if not more, refugees than Syria. So catastrophically has the Maduro regime run the country into the ground with all kinds of negative. Spillover effects for Venezuela's neighbours. I think the problem, John, is that the United States used to meddle rather too frequently in yeah. the politics of uh, of Latin American Caribbean countries, and and it's not unreasonable for us to to draw the conclusion that that, on balance, didn't help. And it's better that these countries sort themselves out. Uh, but you know, if you are an opposition leader in Venezuela, if you're an opposition leader in Cuba, for that matter, such an opposition as there is, it's it's frustrating because you really don't get much help from outside. In fact. You don't even get much uh, attention uh, from outside. I must say one one way that uh, that I keep myself cheerful these days is listening to Cuban music. Afro-Cuban music is one of the most extraordinary and wonderful traditions to come out of the Caribbean. Uh, of, of course, Cuba, free Cuba does exist. It's called Miami and you can visit it whenever you like. It's just hard to get hold of the good cigars.
2: Thank, thank you for that, Neil, because yes, our, our foreign policy interventions have not been a great success. And I would, as the economist, I'd say the number one way to help uh, countries like that is to buy what it is they have to sell. Uh, and I would add that our drug policies have been a disaster for Central America.
0: You know, I can help you on cigars, and there's a nice Cuban restaurant in Palo Alto. I'd be more than happy to take the three of you to. A question from a in North Carolina. I'm a mathematical physics student. Why are debates in your world never settled? In physics, it's easy to settle debates after proper reading, but in philosophy, economics, or government, it goes on and on and on.
1: Why? i don't know that all the questions in physics have been settled uh, last i heard i'm from a family of physicists so careful my, my sister's a physicist my mother's a physicist i'm the black sheep of the family sheep, right uh, but talking of things black and um, when you get into the mysteries of dark uh, matter and dark energy there's lots that's unresolved in in physics and i think the the key here is to understand the distinction Uh, between science and a discipline like history that cannot uh, run experiments in the way that physicists and other scientists need to. We can't do a randomized controlled trial of a historical thesis either. Uh, So we're engaged in fundamentally different disciplines, and there can't therefore be definitive answers. A lot of historical questions are counterfactual in their very nature. What if the United States had not invaded Afghanistan after 9-11? We can't answer definitively what would have happened because it's a thought experiment. So these are fundamentally different modes of thinking. Uh, They're not uh, mutually exclusive. In my view, the most uh, impressive intellects that I've ever encountered are those that can operate both in the scientific and in the uh, humanistic modes with equal ease. I wish I had that capacity, I'm afraid I, as I said, I'm the black sheep of the Ferguson family.
0: Neil, John, anything uh, HR you want to add quickly?
1: No, I just I just think that if we're looking at really
3: complex problems and opportunities, that that what's critical is an interdisciplinary perspective. And I always found it useful to to bring together historians and physicists and 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 experts in in, in, in other fields uh, to help frame complex uh, challenges and then to 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 come up with creative ideas uh, about, about how to overcome. Obstacles and take advantage of opportunities.
2: It's not just you know astrophysics doesn't have experiments or at least not yet, um, but there's a big difference uh, that uh, in in economics. Um, there are people whose pocketbook depends on forgetting old answers. There's plenty that's settled. Free trade is good. Rent control destroys cities. Minimum wages reduce employment among poor people. Uh, but there's lots. Of the, but these are political questions. And there are lots of people for whom economics is simply a set of Rolodex cards to be used when asking the federal government to send the money. Um, and therefore, there's a strong incentive to, to not settle on things that, in fact, we all know are true.
0: So we have about less than 10 minutes left in this show, and there's a lot of stuff I'd still like to get to, but we're not. Uh, A question for the gentleman from Lincolnshire, UK. Could each good fellow rewind their clock and reveal one scholar whom they admired and whose work profoundly shaped their worldview?
1: I'll go first. R.G. Collingwood was a philosopher of history and archaeologist who taught at Oxford between the wars. And anybody who's interested in the philosophy of history should read his wonderful autobiography, which was published on the eve of World War II, and I still think is the most profound statement on, on what it is that historians are trying to do that I've ever read. HR? I would say G.K. Chesterton.
3: You know, and I think you can't go wrong in reading any, any of his essays, but a, a collection of his essays in particular that's entitled In Defense of Sanity. I think if you read it today, you will think it has direct application uh, to, to much of what we've been discussing uh, in this Goodfellas episode.
2: Well, I'll take. I was raised Catholic. So when you give me one, I'll take three. And that would be the Trinity. For me, it was the Trinity of uh, Gene Fama, Bob Lucas, and Lars Hansen, along with, since I was raised Catholic, Saints and Angels, where I'll I'll start with Eric and Lydia Cochran. And what they taught me was not so much facts, but uh, virtues uh, in the old fashioned sense of the word. Always be honest and transparent and clear. It's more important to be right than to be clever. Uh, treat, people, treat people as equals. What matters is, is their logic and facts, not their fancy titles. Avoid uh, academic politics, especially at, at all costs. Uh, they taught me those virtues by example, and I try hard to live by them.
0: Okay, for all three of you, can you name the one movie that best represents your studies slash background?
1: The great Soviet adaptation of War and Peace uh, by Sergei Bondarchuk, which is epic and used as extras for the battle scenes, more or less the entire Red Army. It's the greatest movie ever made.
0: H.R., you have a huge advantage over John here. A lot more military movies than economic
2: movies. History (laughs) and military. I mean, you guys got the easy ones
3: here. I can't go with Patton. (laughs) I mean, there are a lot of great military movies, you know, and
0: and I think aspects of them are particularly instructive.
3: Let me give us two or three, H.R. Okay, I'll say say, I I like A Bridge Too Far. I really like it because it has a lot to do with kind of an intelligence failure and wishful thinking, but also really overcoming tremendous odds and, and the kind of grit and determination that's necessary uh, That's necessary to to win battles. So so I'll I'll just pick pick that one, and then maybe on on a on a, on maybe a civil war side. I, I mean I love I love Gettysburg. I think it was extremely well done. You know I, I think that uh, that it really revealed I think a lot of the dynamics uh, of, of leadership um, and, and really the the cause and effect in that battle. And and one of my favorite scenes it has to be because you know, I'm a cavalry officer is Buford riding up on the first day of Gettysburg. You know it said I can and it says I can see it like it already happened. And that's the job of a, that's a job of a cavalry officer is to help a commander visualize the battle and to help make decisions that, that give you advantage. So not a lot has changed in, in cavalry operations uh, since since uh, 1864.
1: Though so my favorite American Civil War movie is actually The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, which has an amazing Civil War <laughs> sequence in the middle of it. And The Good, the Bad and the Ugly also contains the greatest uh, piece of dialogue in all of, of movie history. It's the moment when, Clint Eastwood uh, turns to Eli Wallach and, and utters the immortal line. There are two kinds of people, my friend, those with loaded guns and those who dig. And that sums up just about all you need to know about the human condition, <laughs> in my view.
3: Well, and then, hey, can I, can I just bring this back to G.K. Chesterton, sure. who who said, who said a version of that, which was that war is not the best way of settling differences, but it's the only way to ensure they're not settled for you.
2: <laughs> well, on this one, you guys, you guys put me on the spot because Hollywood, at least as far as I noticed, hasn't produced a lot of movies with free market libertarians.
0: Well, uh, John, 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 there are a lot of ways you can go here. You can do It's a Wonderful Life. You can do Wall Street. You can do The Big Short. There are a lot of, a lot of quasi-economics. There, there's you can some
2: quasi. Ones. There's, there's the great fact that in Ghostbusters, the uh, EPA was the enemy. I, I enjoyed that.
1: Exactly what are you a doctor of, Mr. Beckman? Well, I have PhDs in parapsychology and psychology
2: bank runs here and there, but nothing really as as deep to my personal uh, to my personal philosophy or or the arc of my life, the closest I can come. uh, My life now most closely remembers uh, resembles uh, an endless repetition of the last day of Groundhog Day. I even get to wake up next to an Andy McDowell lookalike. Uh, but my path to middle-aged <laughs> contentment was different than uh, than uh, um, Bill Murray's. Uh, Emily, I didn't. I started out with other problems. I wasn't a jerk. And,
1: and, Wait, uh, we need to get Bill Murray on Goodfellas. I think I could make it happen. That would be absolutely epic. Uh, uh, can we, it would put us
2: to shame. <laughs>
0: okay. Can we agree? By the way, we'd like to get an air Cav hat for HR and have him say, "I love the smell of napalm in the morning." <laughs> I love
3: the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> It's, it's called a Stetson, it? that's it, Bill. It's a Stetson. Okay.
0: <laughs> Another great war movie. A question from a viewer in New Orleans. What was each fellow's favorite memory or discussion from the past year of broadcasting? Why don't we make it simpler? Why don't we name your favorite guest? And uh, if the two of you want to shamelessly suck up to Neil and say, Ion, be my
1: guest. <laughs> I loved Roland Fryer's appearance last year. What the data is basically telling us, surprise, surprise, is that there's no, th- no such thing as a free lunch. At a time when uh, the whole question of race and the police was setting the nation on fire. And he spoke with extraordinary passion and clarity on the most controversial subject in the country today.
3: I'll I'll say I loved all of our guests. You know, I'll I'll mention Barry Weiss in particular.
1: I can
0: go on social media um, and misconstrue anything, a phrase, three seconds of video that one of you says in this conversation. And potentially if the right number of blue check marks pick up on it ruin your life
3: I thought that was a great show for many of the same reasons that it was a great is a great show with Glenn as as well
0: black lives matter the narration of police violence uh, it, it's becoming a part of a of a of a discernible pattern, it seems to me, of racialization, critical race theory, which covers a lot of ground, but, and it's everywhere, Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, Uh, uh, white allies, you know, so something big is going on in the culture, it seems to me. I
3: think both of them, uh, I think, illuminate some of these these challenges that we're facing inside of our our country uh, in, in ways that, that that, uh, that are unique and, and helpful.
0: So I would say Barry. John, you get the last word.
3: I'm
2: sorry. I love all our guests. And, and back to my virtues, I never want to say my favorite because then I'd leave out some of the other ones. Uh, our guests have been wonderful and, and my fellow uh, my fellow good fellows have been great. I've learned a lot from you guys. In the
1: you last should year. run for election, John, with an
0: answer <laughs> like that. We just had an election here in California. Where were the three of you?
3: <laughs> we could have okay, recalled Newsom pretty- and had you. I mean, it's no longer the grumpy economist. Look how far John's come. He's like the super (laughs) nice economist now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen me
2: reading, uh, Colin, in the New York Times. The New York Times.
0: <laughs> so, fellas, we're going to call it a day at this point. There's a lot of stuff here I'd still love to get into. Uh, Neil, we had another uh, note from Western Australia. They think we should have a fellows world tour. They think we should kick it off in Sydney or Australia or in Singapore, perhaps. Uh I'd point out, by the way, the Rolling Stones are touring right now in North America with a 78-year-old Mick Jagger, uh, Keith Richards will be 78 in December, and a sprightly Ronnie Wood, who's only 74. So why not the three of you on concert? Answered.
1: there's hope for us yet but we'll start in Perth uh if we're gonna tour surely that's where Western Australians want us to go
0: okay
3: well, we'll and, and I'll just point out I'll just point out my friend Mickey Hart is still at it as well Bill you know so hats off to him yes very good <laughs>
0: All right. Well, Neil, HR, John, thanks for putting on a great show here. Thanks for answering the questions. And thank all of you, our viewers, for sending in the questions. We did one of these back in about April. Uh, We're doing it now. So we'll do one a few months from now. We'll hit you up for questions when the time comes. So on behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, thanks for watching as always. We'll be back soon with another show. Until then, take care. Thanks for watching.
3: If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.